to be just fine all the way through. Uh, this morning we are going to spend some time looking at the uh, idea of worship and not just the part we're most comfortable with. See, when most of us think of worship, we think of joy and, and singing and, and happiness. We think, well, this is so good, I just can't keep it in. I need to sing about it, which happens very rarely in our lives. And if anyone else is Scandinavian, you know we... Uh, we don't show emotion. We might say, well, this is, this is pretty good. <laughs> or at least it's not too bad. <laughs> but the thing is, our experience in this life is so much more than just happiness and, and goodness. We, we struggle. We endure hardship. We, we deal with difficult things. And so the question is, what does worship look like when we're not joyful, when we can't bring ourselves to sing? And the Psalms are a beautiful collection of writings that were used for thousands of years as, as things which would be read in the worship of God's people or songs that would be sung in the worship of God's people. And so today we're looking at Psalm 102, a lament psalm, a psalm that deals with the difficult side of human experience, of what it means to worship in the midst of ugliness and brokenness. And for those of us not familiar with the different genre of psalms, lament psalms are more than just sad or complaining. They weave together a beautiful song from contrasting tunes. In this case, the uncomfortable tension between our suffering and God's goodness. And as we read this together, we'll see that maybe brokenness and worship are not two opposing ideas but rather brokenness can lead us into deeper and more honest worship. Before we go any further this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for today. Thank you for the wonderful privilege it is as your church to gather together and to focus on you. God, as we read from this psalm, as we hear the psalmist's honest complaint, as we hear his reflection, as we focus on those things, as we reflect on those things, as we grow through those things, would you help us to think about our own things that we might complain about and how we can be honest with you in those, how we can worship you through those things. God, lead us this morning, guide us, and may you be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Psalm 102, and this morning I'll be reading from the ESV. Psalm 102 starts uh, in an interesting way. You have Psalm 100, which is a prayer of thanksgiving, Psalm 101, which is talking about integrity, and Psalm 102, which is not attributed to any one particular psalmist. But it starts like this. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. 
For my days pass away like smoke and my bones like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and as withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up in Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayers of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height. From the heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So there it is. Psalm 102. Now, Psalm 102 starts in an interesting way. As I already mentioned, it doesn't describe who it is. Uh, So we're going to call him the the psalmist. He's the one who wrote this psalm. All we have about him is this little piece, that this is a prayer, specifically, and it's a prayer of one afflicted. That's, That's how the author chose to describe himself. This is the prayer of someone who is suffering and going through a terrible, terrible time, and specifically when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And so the first part can be broken into two pieces, a plea and a complaint. We're going to focus first on the first two verses, this plea. There's really three key pieces to it. The first part, hear my prayer. I mean, honestly, how many of us, when we have prayed to God, have simply said, God, please hear this? Which is an interesting thing to say in the first place. If you didn't think God could hear your prayer, why would you say it? And yet there's actually a reason for this. In the Old Testament, if God was angry with somebody, if if God had written somebody off, then he may ignore their prayer. So that simple piece is, God, please don't ignore me. And yet it's a very personal thing, isn't it? I think whenever we pray, we have that same desire. God, would you hear my prayer? Would you not only hear it, but as we see the next part, don't ignore me. Hear me, please. Don't ignore me. And the third part, answer me quickly. Has anyone else ever prayed a prayer like that? 
hear me, don't ignore me, answer me quickly. Yeah, of course, because it's a human prayer. It makes perfect sense from our perspective that we would desire that God would hear us, that He would answer us. It's an earnest desire that God would hear them. It's an earnest desire that God would answer them and hope that the answer would come quickly. And it comes from a very human place. Just looking at the author here, they are beaten down, they are alone, and they have nothing left. Now that's reading into it a little bit from these next few verses. So let's look at that. Verses 3 through 11. This is the complaint that the psalmist is bringing before God. And the, the psalmist is going through incredibly difficult things, suffering on more than one level. There's the physical level. He says, my days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. And whether this is physical anguish or anxiety that is so great that they can feel it in their bones, one way or another, it doesn't feel good. I forget to eat my bread. My bones cling to my flesh. That I'm so disturbed by this. I'm having such a difficult time that I can't eat. That my, I'm getting skinny. Now that second part I've heard about, uh, I've never experienced that. Now I've been complaining a lot to my wife that all of these chemo drugs I'm on tell me that one of the side effects is weight loss. And I'm getting upset because they keep marketing it, but I don't see it happen. You know, if there's going to be one positive to it, it would be a little free weight loss. But no, not happening. And not to mention that the doctors and nurses say, well... We don't actually want you to lose weight, which, what did I sign up for this for? Those jokes aside, the, the psalmist is, is so distraught that he can't eat, that he's losing weight, that it's, it's like his, his bones cling to his skin, that, that he's not well. He says, I lie awake, and so he can't eat, he can't sleep. He is beside himself because of the things he is enduring. You have the emotional side. He says, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink, which for those of you not familiar, this is language of mourning, that there are ashes mixed in things which should not go in my food, I'm putting in my food. Things that should not go in my drink are going in my drink. And whether it's because of sloppiness, because I can't control myself, or if it's because I am mourning and I need someone to see what I'm experiencing. He goes on to say, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And I think we can all resonate on some level with this sorrow. That he is struck on such an emotional level that it's, it's almost impossible to bear. You see the social side, this deep loneliness. He describes himself like an, a desert owl of the wilderness. Like an owl of waste places. Like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. This is, this is not saying I'm just a little bit alone. But on, on the scale of being alone, even then I'm lonely. Like an owl in desert spaces, in waste spaces, like a sparrow on the rooftop, that there is no one around. So in the midst of this physical suffering, this emotional hardship, there is the social side of feeling like there's no one around me who can help me. And then it goes even deeper into the spiritual side. And he says in verse 10, because of your indignation and anger. Now let's remember who the psalm is writing to. This is a prayer. This is directed at God. 
he is saying all of these things, this struggle that I'm facing, these things that I'm enduring are because of you. But specifically because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. Now we're going to come back to that in a little piece. Because we might ask, well, whose fault is this? And it seems like the psalmist is saying, well, it's God's fault, right? Except there's, there's another piece. Why would God be indignant? Why would God be angry? And so one of the things I didn't say, although if you were in the adult Sunday school class, you know this part already because we talked about this psalm. There's an element of sin here. This is regarded as a, a penitentiary psalm, but one where the psalmist is complaining about their own sin and the results that have brought. And the reason it says that is because we might ask a simple question. Why would God be indignant? Why would God be angry? Do those things happen for just no reason? No. And so the simple assumption is that it's because of sin of some sort. And so the psalmist is not blaming God for his affliction, but he is asking God to relent, to make his suffering easier, to, to make it so that he can be saved. And the psalmist is in an incredibly difficult place. There's a cry out to God to answer their prayer. There's an honest complaint that their suffering is too much, that their days seem to be running out, and only God can save them. And so that is what this morning we're going to call the remonstrance. Now that's your, that's your word for the day, right? Anyone use that word in the last week, remonstrance? No, of course not. Here's the definition for it. An earnest presentation for, of reasons for opposition or grievance, a complaint. If you just want to call it a complaint, that's fine, but it doesn't fit the other R words, so... <laughs> if we're going to have all three points have one R word, then I've got, got to get creative, right? So there's your word for the day, remonstrance. That first piece, that it is the psalmist bringing a complaint before God, that there is something wrong in this situation that, God, I need you to fix. But then there's a shift where the psalmist goes from simply complaining and presenting this complaint before God, not in a bad way, in a worshipful way, to shifting to not focusing on the psalmist at all, but instead on God. And so we're going to shift to remembering in verse 12. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout generations. Now I'm going to tell you right now that the psalmist is setting up a contrast between himself and God. And we can see this right away. You look at the end of verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. So right away, the psalmist starts by saying, I'm withering away. I am nothing. But you, God, will endure forever. I'm falling apart. You've got it all together. I am weak and in need of help, and you are the God of the universe. That contrast is immediate. And then you have this shift in perspective, that the psalmist, where he was first focused on his own situation, instead, as he shifts his focus off of himself, he reminds us of who God is. That God is enthroned forever. That God keeps His promises. We see that in verse 13. That these promises that God has made are already starting to come true. We see that in verses 14 and 15. That God lifts up His people and that He answers prayer. 
that we see in verse 17. Now, already there has been a substantial shift in focus. It's, it's almost jarring the way it goes from talking about here is my complaint and here are my issues to this is who you are. What can these things have to do with each other where we can talk about our complaint and then talk about how good God is? In fact, it almost seems like those two things should be further apart. How can we be talking about how God is good and keeps his promises when the psalmist seems to be saying that you have not kept up your end of the bargain with me? But then it keeps going. He says, let this be recorded. This is a a personal vow to remember and praise. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Now, this gets a little bit tricky. And the reason I say that is because, as we're about to see in the next few verses, there's a couple pieces going on. There's the personal complaint that here's an issue that I seem to be going through. And then hope seems to be found in God's promises to his people. Now, some commentators have pointed out that this looks a lot like it's, in fact, the psalmist representing all of Israel, that all of Israel is suffering and struggling, that as God's promises are to all of Israel, that there is hope then for all of Israel. But there's that element of the personal that's woven throughout that I think we can't quite ignore. Let this be recorded so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And I'm going to say right now that it seems like the psalmist has found hope to some extent. That their affliction is clear in present, but in remembering who God is and what God has promised and what God is doing, there's somehow hope that in this moment God would answer and that it would be a reason for future generations to praise God. Now, like I said, there's this piece that it seems that it affects more than just the psalmist. It's a personal complaint, but it it almost speaks of something greater. But the hope here is also a little bit more complicated than that. That it doesn't seem to rest in the fact that their personal prayer would be answered. They have their personal complaint. God has shown himself trustworthy and faithful. There were the promises of God already coming true. And in that, there is an extension of hope that God will also save them. But there isn't really any certainty given on that front, that this prayer will be answered, that God will answer in the specific circumstance. Which brings up a couple questions. How can there be hope without certainty? How can we be sure that God will answer us? Well, the psalmist rests in that in the last piece of the passage, in what I'm going to call the refrain. And in it, the psalmist goes back to both parts, the complaint aspect of the psalm and the praise aspect of the psalm. He says, he's broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take not... Uh, Take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. You hear that contrast already? Don't take me away, you who last forever. I have short years. I have limited time. This is the most, one of the most human things we can find in the Psalms. This very 
natural desire. God, don't, don't, don't take me away yet. Whether it's because we have things to do or things that we'd like to see, experiences we'd like to have, relationships that we'd like to see. I know for myself, when I got diagnosed with cancer, the biggest question is, am I going to be there for my kids as they grow up? And you wrestle with those things. You grieve over those things. And so when I read this, this verse, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout generations. There is a, a human cry that says, look, I, I'm not like you. I, I can't do this. I need you. And, and this is not what I want. And even though it seems to be the direction you're calling me, I don't like it. And I think that's fair. I think that's honest. But then they contrast it in verse 25. You, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. And so you have this contrast, this brokenness, this, this complaint and plea mixed with praise. And these two things are not just big separate sections, but they're brought back together. And it's like this interweaving of tunes that don't go together, that are somehow making this harmony, that they're wrestling with this tension, this brokenness aspect of our human condition and the circumstances we face with the praise of God who does not change, who remains through generations. This assurance that future generations shall dwell secure. But how do the two fit together? The answer, whether it looks like it immediately or not, is that both rest in God's goodness. Let me explain. You have this verse, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days, followed by a plea that their life would continue. How does this speak to God's goodness? A simple question, why pray? Unless we believe that God is good and desires good for us, that prayer is wasted. Unless we trust that God is good and will answer us, that prayer is completely pointless. Unless we hope that God's goodness will be shown to us, then there's no reason we would go to the Lord in prayer at all. The fact that he's bringing his complaint before God is because he desires God to act and because his faith is in the fact that God is good. It has to be, or the prayer is worthless. It's pointless. You have the worship side of this, that all else will pass away, but God remains. He is the same and has no end. Followed by trust that the children of God's servants will rest secure, established before God. How does this speak of God's goodness? And the answer is, it's praise. Rooted in the understanding that God is greater than us. There's humility there. There's honesty there. Even if we fade away, God remains. God is in control over events spanning generations and is already at work. And even if God does not rescue them, there is hope in God's goodness to care for those the psalmist could not. And maybe it's that sort of resignation when we reach the end of ourselves and realize that's, that's all I've got left. That I've done all I can I've achieved all I can achieve. I've struggled for all that I can struggle for. And the rest is out of my hands. Maybe it's that piece where the psalmist is saying, I, I'm at my end. And the rest is dependent on you. 
Or maybe that resignation that realized it was always all dependent on you. Even if you don't answer me, I know that my children are safe in your hands. Even if I perish, you remain and can be trusted to act on behalf of your people. A psalmist doesn't blame God for their suffering. But they also never doubt his goodness. Can we say the same in the midst of our struggles? Even when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the fiery furnace, what was their response? Maybe you remember this. They answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, that's a big but if not. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's a difficult thing to wrestle with, the the idea that God can absolutely answer us, but he might not. And even so, we will follow God and we will obey him. They were in exile under a godless king and given the choice of idolatry or death. Still, they understood that God may not answer their prayer, but they did not fault God. They did not doubt his ability to save them or doubt his goodness, even if he didn't answer them. Paul, as we read at the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, endured a thorn in the flesh, which we're told he prayed for it to be removed, but was assured that God's grace was sufficient. That's, that's even worse. Not, not only did he say, I don't know if I'll get this one answered, he had an answer. And the answer was not what he wanted. Paul was told specifically that God would not answer his prayer, but it did not cause him to doubt God's goodness. Instead, he boasted in his own weakness because it might lead others to trust in God's goodness. So often when we think about our own suffering, the first question we come to ask is, is God really good? If God would allow something like this, could a good God allow this thing to happen to me? And people wrestle with that and they struggle with that. Did God forget about me? Did God ever even love me? And somewhere along the line, we get the idea that telling God how we actually feel is only going to make things worse. And let me just stop and ask, where on earth did we get that idea? That if we tell God how we actually feel, that he's going to get upset with us. I I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. Who created emotions? God did. Who created beings capable of feeling emotions and being ruled by emotions? God did. Who created us specifically for relationship with Him? God did. And so do we honestly think that God is going to get upset if we cry a little? If we get a little upset? If we don't understand things? Just like as a parent, when our children don't understand something and they complain about something or they argue about something because they can't see the bigger picture, do we as parents really get upset about that or do we say, it's okay, you'll understand someday? Or even if you don't understand, I need you to trust me. And that's just a small, small piece of this bigger picture. God is not afraid of how we feel. God is not afraid of our honesty. When David was in anguish, he poured out his complaint before God. 
When David was scared, he asked, God, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Not an accusation that, God, you've done wrong, but this declaration that, God, I don't understand. And I need you. And I'm trusting in you. And I don't know where you've gone. The psalmist of 102 is not accusing God of anything except having complete and utter control. He doesn't understand why God is allowing him to suffer to this extent, but he rests in the fact that even when it doesn't seem like it, God is still good. God is still in control. Speaking of this, A.W. Tozer wrote that when God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was upon the face of the deep. When the eternal Son became flesh, He was carried for a time in the darkness of the sweet virgin's womb. When He died for the life of the world, it was in the darkness, seen by no one at the last. When He arose from the dead, it was very early in the morning. No one saw Him rise. It is as if God were saying, What I am is all that need matter to you, for there lie your hope and your peace. I will do what I will do, and it will all come to light at last. But how I do it is my secret. Trust me and be not afraid. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but His goodness encourages us not to be afraid of Him. To fear and not be afraid. That is the paradox of faith. And so we ask the question, is it possible that God is still good even when my circumstances are not? Is God still good if He doesn't answer me the way that I want? I mentioned in my introduction that when most of us think of worship, we think of joy and music and singing, that it is an outpouring of thankfulness to God. But worship ought to be far more. It ought to be the honest outpouring of our hearts to God as we wrestle with things, as we struggle with things, as we embrace the intimacy with God that He asks of us. My wife does not just expect that our relationship will happen when things are good, that conversations will only happen when she's entirely happy and I'm entirely happy. If that were the case, we'd hardly know each other. We struggle through hard things. We struggle through disagreements. We work and come alongside one another when the other is struggling. And it's in those moments of brokenness that she sees a deeper side of me that she doesn't get to see in other places. It's when she's struggling and facing brokenness that I get to see a part of her that no one else ever gets to see. There's intimacy as love happens in those broken places. And so when we ask, what does worship look like when we're not joyful, when we can't bring ourselves to sing, that yes, it is good to sing God praises and give Him thanks for what He's done. But what does it look like to worship in the midst of brokenness? To praise when it doesn't seem like God will do anything. And for that, I think we can take inspiration from the psalmist. Honestly bring your thoughts, your wants, your desires, and even complaints to God. Don't worry. He's he's big enough. He's strong enough. He can handle anything you throw at Him. And better yet, He loves you enough that He'll hear it. Remind yourself of who God is and what that means for us. We serve a good and loving God who is not unaware of the difficulties that we face. Is He faithful? Good. Trust in His faithfulness even in this. Is He loving? Good. Trust in His love even in the midst of this difficulty. Has He abandoned you? No. 
And that's good. Trust that he will remain true even when you can't see the way in front of you. And if we can take anything from the psalmist, it's permission to struggle. I know so often we think that struggling with God's plans is a lack of faith, and I don't think it is. I think we're just being honest with God in a very human situation. That God, looking at it from my perspective, I don't see the way forward. I don't see the benefit. I don't see the purpose in this. And that's okay, because God does. And as we wrestle, as we talk to Him about those things, we give Him the opportunity to speak into those quiet moments to reassure us that even if we don't have it figured out, He does. And even when we don't have everything together, that we are reminded of our very humanity, of our limitations, of our frailty, and our dependence on God, which whether we like it or not, was wired in in our very creation. We were made to depend on Him. And we fall apart when we try to rely on ourselves. It's not easy to reconcile that tension between hardship or struggling and the goodness of God. And true worship isn't pretending that everything's okay when it's not. True worship is being honest with God and honest with ourselves. God can handle your brokenness and questions. God can take your dissatisfaction, but He does not want your pretend worship. Give Him your whole, honest, broken self and let Him give you the answer He desires. This is what I believe is true of my situation. This is what I know is true about God. Those two ideas can be so separate and so difficult to rationalize that we struggle. But the goal ought to be to come out the other side better grounded in truth. That this is what it seems like from my perspective, but this is who I know God is. And even if I can't trust my own experience, I can trust in who God is. I may not understand why my circumstances are what they are, but God is still good. I may not understand why God does not answer my prayer, but God is still faithful. And I may not see where God is leading me or why, but God is still in control. And then there's the hard reality of humanity, that sometimes our pride gets in the way. Or we think too much of ourselves, or we think that we have more power than we do. Sometimes we need to be brought low and to see how desperately we need God. And sometimes God is good enough to remind us. With that, let's go to prayer. God, we thank you for today. And God, I just lift up those who are, who are enduring hard things. God, it's, it's a reality that in this world we will have trouble. And for some of us, it's physical. For some of us, it's emotional. For others, it's social. For many of us, it's spiritual hardship. And God, no matter who we are or how far along we are in our faith, those things can hit us harder than we expect. They can wear us down and break us down to the point where we don't know where to turn. God, would you help us in those moments of brokenness to turn the only place we can to you? to remind ourselves of who you are, that while my situation might seem this way, I can be reminded through my own experience or through your word that you are good 
and you are faithful and you are kind and you are loving, that you hear prayers and you do not abandon us. And while we might be blinded by the hardness of the things we face, enough that we we lose sight of that truth, God, would you help us to bring our honest complaints, our honest difficulties, our questions. And God, as we reflect on the truth of who you are, would you bring those two things together? And in the midst of our brokenness, to worship you more honestly, more openly, and more intimately. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.